Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. This summer, we are revisiting episodes from the Global Council podcast archive, looking at what they can tell us about topical developments in public policy and regulation ahead of the autumn. From COP26 to the education system in the US, the GC team offers timeless insight into global and national trends to look out for across sectors and around the world. On behalf of Global Council, I'd like to to welcome you all today and thank you for joining what uh, we anticipate will be a very lively and engaging discussion. I'm Elizabeth Beal and I lead Global Council's climate and sustainability practice. And I'm honored to introduce you uh, to our featured speaker for today, Lord Deben, who's the chairman of the Committee on Climate Change, among many other laudable roles, ranging from chairman of Valpac Limited and Sandcroft. Um, he's also the, the longest serving Secretary of State for the Environment that the UK has ever had, and throughout his career has championed the link between addressing environmental challenges and good business sense. So Lord Deben, thank you for joining us and, and sure. welcome. And I'm also honored to introduce you to Jeffrey Norris, Senior Advisor at Global Council. Jeffrey is an expert in climate energy and industrial policy and has been at the heart of business and climate policymaking for the past two decades, having served as a principal business advisor to previous prime ministers. So, uh, Jeffrey. Thank you, Elizabeth. And thank you, Lord Deben, for joining us. Um, I'd like to start by asking you about the Climate Change Committee. 12 years since its creation, it does seem to me to be an example of successful innovation in public policymaking. Uh, It's improved the quality of policy discussion and decision-making in the UK uh, at a time of uh, what one might describe as political change uh, in the UK. Uh, It's been a point of continuity uh, and durability. What would you identify as the reasons for its success? Well, I think, first of all, it's independence. Uh, I think it it is remarkable that um, Parliament was prepared to set up a committee which consists not of representative people, but of scientists and economists, uh, chaired by somebody who is neither, but but otherwise, uh, without representation, which is very clever, really, because it meant it didn't compete with Parliament in some way. It gave very clear and gives very clear advice based on the science. And so the, the second thing I think is so important is the, the fact that the first chairman, uh, Adair Turner, brilliantly recognised that his job was to make sure that everything that was published was accurate, was scientifically correct, and which was not and was not campaigning, simply told people what the facts were as far as any of us knew. And that, of course, established the situation, which was that this was neither an NGO campaigning, nor was it an instrument of government because he upheld the independence very strongly. And then I was fortunate because when I was appointed, we had a coalition government. So I was appointed by a Liberal Democrat minister the first Minister of Wales, who was a, a Labour supporter, first Minister of Scotland, who was a Scots nationalist, and the first Minister of the North of Ireland, who was a Protestant unionist. So the fact that they chose a Catholic and a Conservative was, of course, made quite sure everybody realised it really <laughs> was independent. And uh, <clears throat> that, again, is a terribly important thing, that these that this is not something appointed by the Prime Minister. It's actually appointed by these four. And it's very unusual, would be very unusual, for any two of them to belong to the same party. So that, again, really keeps the politics out of it. And then I think the third thing is that the Act is a very clever Act because it actually lays down timetables so that, for example, we produced and had to produce the sixth carbon budget Um, in December of last year, the government has got to place it or an alteration of it before Parliament 
before the beginning of June. It, it has to do that. Every year, whether we like it or not, we have to produce a report as to how well the government has done, and we have to do that in June. And it doesn't much matter what else is happening, they can have an election or a referendum, do what they like, but the fact is we have to do that by law. And there is no way of uh, changing that unless you, you, you actually have a statutory change. And I think the fourth reason is the remarkable um, recognition that there were two dates you had to get right. First of all, you have the um, democratic demand of regular refreshment of mandate. Four or five years, you have to go back to an election. On the other hand, you had the climate change demand, which was a continuation of, uh, uh, of policy, that you, you couldn't defeat climate change unless there was a continuation of policy. And that, of course, is a very different timescale from the mandate uh, uh, timescale. And what the Climate Change Act did was to bring those two together so that when uh, a budget is brought forward, as it has by law to be done by the Climate Change Committee, Parliament then votes on it. But once it's voted on it <clears throat> and given it democratic um, uh, strength and, uh, and uh, asserted democratic control, after that, it can't change it without the Climate Change Committee agreeing. Now, that's terribly important because otherwise the whole idea of doing these budgets well in advance would be destroyed. The reason we do it so well in advance, which is my last reason why I think it's been a success, is because uh, doing it well in advance means that they uh, are presented to Parliament at a time in which people can look at the budget pretty objectively. If you're deciding about a budget as they will be between, which is going to run for most of the 2030s, well, it's quite difficult to get too worried about what Mrs. Jones down the road's factory might do at that stage or what might happen there. It's not about the next election or indeed the election afterwards. So Parliament is much more able to give it an independent view. But overall, of course, the thing that has really made the difference in Britain is that this is a cross-party thing. It was invented by the Conservative Party in opposition. The Conservatives gathered together the support of every other political party in opposition. They then said to the Labour government, we don't want this to be a party political thing. What's more, there are 100 Labour members who will break any whip you put on to support this bill. So why don't you actually put the bills through? And as a result, nobody has the credit for the success. It wouldn't have happened without the Labour government taking it on board. They wouldn't have taken it on board if the opposition hadn't presented it. And all the other parties, including the Protestant unionists, who do have some members who don't really believe that the Bible um, entirely supports the theory of climate change, <coughs> um, they, they are all committed to it. So when the bill went through Parliament, it went through with only eight people voting against it. Same eight that are still against it. <laughs> the truth is, um, it set us off in a way which uh, is remarkable. And I can honestly say as chairman that whoever was in power, would be doing much the same things. I mean, I am congratulatory to this government in the sense that it has set a policy program and uh, schema, uh, which is very much to the point. But I think that any party in these circumstances would do very much the same things. And that is a really remarkable thing to be able to say. Thank you, I, I, uh, that was extremely interesting. Can I just ask, so December's uh, report set out what I think is a groundbreaking uh, pathway to net zero. Uh, and I think it's a model that other countries will want to look at and will follow. Full of lots of analysis uh, and recommendations. Great work by the commissioners, but also great work by Chris and the Secretariat in producing it. One of the things that struck me about it was the interesting analysis on the costs of decarbonisation being less than some people had been suggesting. 
Uh, and I think that was very, very interesting. But what I'd quite like to ask you is what would be, amongst all of the recommendations, what would be your kind of top line takeaway uh, for people to, to, to think about from, your, from the report? I think the thing that it really does is to reassure people that we can do it, that we can do it in time, and that we can do it at a cost which we manifestly can bear. Because the, uh, the naysayers, of course, have moved from saying climate change isn't happening, uh, because that is no longer a possible statement. Um, it was never much of a statement, but it now is impossible. I mean, when gardeners know that the that spring is starting 17 days earlier than when they started gardening, I always find that if you speak to a rather older audience, they all know that. They know the world has changed. And if it's changed like that here, think what happens in the, the, at the uh, equators. So, so what the naysayers have done is to move to a line which says, it, of course, it's happening, but really the cost of doing all this is impossible and it hits the poorest hardest. Many of them are not noted for their support from the poor in the past. And some of people who were in Parliament with me are people who used to argue with me very strongly because I do have to have a one nation social conscience and I, I must say listening to some of them and I think my goodness me that's not where you were interested in in, in your political life but anyway they um, they now have moved to this this price thing so it was hugely important for us to produce these figures and to produce them with the same degree of accuracy and care that we have done everything else so actually nobody's been able to criticize these um, they, they have been very tough. Uh, we actually think we can do it cheaper. I mean, if you ask me whether I thought it would be about 1% gross national product a year, I have to say, I think that overall it'll be less than that. And of course, it'll be largely paid for by investment by the private sector. And it'll be investment which largely will be necessary to get out of COVID, leave alone anything else. So it all fits well together. But I do think that the great thing is that everybody out there, every single person knows that it can be done. So it's no good saying, well, let's eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow we die, because actually we don't need to die tomorrow. We, we can actually do it. And secondly, we can do it um, by uh, 2050. Now, I know that's controversial because many of the campaigners want us to say we can do it earlier. But again, I've, I've, I've got to be able to assure the public that, that, that this is really practical. And the problem with it is, is that, yeah, it'd be lovely to do it by 2030, be lovely to do it by 2040. But the truth is, you have to do it sequentially. You can't make electric cars contribute unless you've got energy which is produced by, uh, uh, by renewable schemes. By the time you get the electric cars on, you, you, you really aren't going to be able to ban every car that isn't electric in 2030. You do have to be sensible about this. So the date is important. And then, of course, the price is important because it means that we can do it with any, within any kind of reasonable budget. On the date, I mean, one of the things I also took from reading the report was that it is a call for action uh, in the next decade. Some big things, big decisions need to be taken in the coming years in order for us to, to get ready to make pro real progress. Is that, is that right? Oh, yes. I mean, the fact that we say we can't do it before 2050 is dependent upon the fact that we also say that we have to do a hell of a lot of things in the next 10 years. Otherwise, we won't get to that. I mean, this is not, uh, this, is, this is no um, slowly, slowly catchy monkey. The point is, the monkey has got out. That's what climate change has done. It no longer is under our control. So the, 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 the timing is, in a sense, dictated to us by the fact that we cease to control uh, climate change. So, um, of course, we have to do a whole series of really tough things during this period. And the government has recognized that and, and what the government has announced has, has certainly uh, comes near to what we think ought to be the policy 
The problem, of course, is not the policy, it's the delivery. And it is that that we're going to spend the rest of this uh, decade, I have no doubt on. Yeah. It's about getting that policy into delivery. Delivery is always quite difficult. It is. Uh, the government particularly so. That's not what they know about. Can I turn to the wider international picture and COP? Um, after the train crash at Copenhagen, Paris and its bottom-up rather than top-down approach was regarded as a real advance. The expectation was uh, that it would steadily ratchet up uh, countries' carbon reduction efforts. Do you think it is actually achieving that? Well, I think, first of all, we mustn't underestimate the absolute unique nature of Paris. I mean, it is the only time in history that every nation on earth has signed up to a, uh, uh, a willingness to make a common, make common cause. Now, we all know that some of those who signed up have no intention of doing what they said they do, and others um, have promised things which we don't notice that they are doing, and we're going to have to ratchet them all up, but the, the basis is, is, is remarkable. And when you think of, I was at Kyoto, when you think of how difficult Kyoto was just to get anything to move at all. Um, and then I think that um, the other bit of count we often underestimate about Paris was the commitment of the rich nations to recognize they had to pay for it. Uh, and that's just a, a matter of uh, moral justification. <clears throat> it isn't just because they've got the money. It's because that money comes from the very pollution that has actually made the world in peril. So we are rich because we have polluted and therefore you have to pay the price. There's no way through that. And that is intrinsic. And actually it was largely um, the work of Amber Rudd. One must not forget that Britain played a really important part in doing that. Uh, now, the, the ratcheting has to take place. That's why there is a five-year policy. But we also have to remember that um, uh, America signed up to Paris in a way which she was never able really to sign up to Kyoto. Yeah. But she signed up to Paris and there was that wonderful picture of uh, John Kerry with, um, with his grandchild on his knee when he signed it because that was the point he was making. Although I keep on reminding people that it's now moving so fast that it's not our grandchildren we're looking after nor our children. Even people as old as I am are looking after me because this is really changing quickly. But um, the fact is that America has been out of the world for four years. Um, it, it, uh, it's very difficult for Americans to recognize just how absolutely uh, otherworldly the Trump regime was, that it had nothing to do with the realities of life. And uh, the coming of, uh, of Joe Biden is really very important, not least because he's not a radical. What he is, is something much more important, actually. He is a realist. And what he's talking about is the realities of life. So he's, he's going to have difficulty from what you might call his radical wing. But the truth is that as far as America is concerned, what he's doing is calling the nation back to a re real approach to the world. And that is hugely important for the rest of us because it does mean now that um, the, almost all the industrialized nations have now signed up to net zero in 2050. I mean, China wants it to be 2060, but at least she signed up. I mean, who would have thought that, um, who would have thought that Japan would sign up to uh, net zero at 20 or, or South Korea? So the, the world showed the direction it was moving in in Paris. And I think now there's every reason to believe that we're going to make that work. Um, the only problem is, and it is a very real problem, is that there are an awful lot of delivery issues in the meantime. And we've also got to be very clear about uh, helping nations to um, achieve their end. I mean, the point that I'm particularly concerned about is we've got to help the developing nations to move from where they are to where they ought to be without the intervening period of dirty business. That's really the important thing. And that means that, you, that we really do have to help Africa, but particularly in Africa, where a huge rise in population, huge demands, and yet it's much more sensible to have um, 
uh, for example, radio telephony rather than uh, uh, a fixed line. It's similarly much more sensible to have dispersed uh, generation than it is to have centralized generation. All that is true. Um, there's a lot of sun, actually, so you can do a lot with uh, photovoltaics. Uh, there's a good deal of wind in some places, so you can do that too. All that can be done, but it needs investment. And of course, there, this government has done two awful things, and one does have to say that. I mean, first of all, the reduction of the um, uh, overseas aid budget from 07 to 0.5% is a moral outrage. I mean, you really, no human family would dream when they were in difficulties of taking it out on people with, with even less than they did. I mean, I just find it so unacceptable and so unnecessary and marginal. If you really look at what we're spending on COVID, it's really a very serious issue. And of course, that has set us back as far as other things are concerned, because we had committed ourselves to it. The Conservative Party, I don't just mean we as a nation, but the Conservative Party, now the government, had in, in their election manifesto committed themselves to that. So, of course, that has undermined us very seriously. And then secondly was the sort of raid by the Foreign Office of the Bayes-based uh, money for um, the climate change. Now, the climate change budget has not been changed. It is what it was. Um, that is, thank God, very at least good. But it, it's now being run by the Foreign Office. And the thing about this is that it, this is not their expertise. And it was done, uh, just done, for reasons which are quite difficult uh, to see, except a bit of empire building, it seems to me. And it's really serious issue. Um, because Bayes um, had got the thing running really very effectively. And there are some pretty difficult signs that the Foreign Office hasn't really seen the particularly careful balance that you have to do here. And uh, those who were running it um, uh, ought to be running it too now. Can I ask you... What, in your mind, does success at COP26 look like? What Sorry, success, what does it look like? <laughs> well, I think, um, obviously, uh, that the nations already committed, commit themselves to something more and show that they have a programme to do so. Now, we've led well on that. Um, I allow myself to be very critical when it needs to be, because I can be complimentary then. And the government taking the figure which we recommended of saying that by 2030, it will reduce our emissions on 1990 by 68%, has in fact done something which is really important. First of all, it's more than anyone else. But secondly, it's what you have to do if you're going to get to 2050. And that's why, as you said, the, the sixth carbon budget is a groundbreaking budget because it does take you in effect uh, to uh, 2050. Because by the time you get to the end of the 30s, you can draw a straight line from that to the 50s. If you, if you aren't there, then you're not going to reach the other. So um, they, the government set a very good example on that. Other nations are beginning to recognize that they really do have to work through it. They, they can't say a figure for 2030, which makes 2050 impossible if they've committed themselves to net zero in 2050. So I think that is uh, part of the measurement. The, the money actually not only being promised, but delivered for the developing countries is going to be a really important part of it and better mechanisms for measurement, better ways of thinking about offsetting, all those things are going to be things we'll be looking at. I mean, if you take the issue of offsetting, um, there are ways in which you can use offsetting, which will actually help poorer countries to get to their end quicker. But there are other ways in which you're just getting out of doing it yourself, and that isn't an acceptable thing as well. So is there that, are technical reasons why the Climate Change Committee is not that keen on the UK taking some of the uh, counting some of these offsets in its own target. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be quite wrong for us to do that. I mean, if you wanted, there's a perfectly good uh, argument to say that um, part of your 
um, spending on helping people to fight climate change elsewhere might be spent in a way which actually um, was linked with offsetting. But that would be an addition. That's, a, that's an addition to it. We have to do this ourselves. We really cannot run a society in which we are um, forever dependent on other countries not doing things because of course you then run against the buffers because by the time you get towards the ends of the 2030s um, what is happening you these other countries are also doing what you want to do and therefore the cost of that offsetting if that's what you wanted to do becomes greater and so putting it off always seems to me to be the the, the fundamental thing the climate change um, uh, act sought to avoid. It sought to make sure that politicians did today what needed to be done today and didn't put it off to tomorrow because there was an election, because the particular prime minister didn't like it, because the minister for this had a constituency interest on that. The whole concept is that you do now what you've got to do and you can't put it off. On politicians, I'm, I'm conscious of time. On politicians, um, I want to, to, to turn to uh, politicians, voters, uh, voters and citizens. Now, the next stage of the journey to net zero is going to intrude on people's lives in a way that decarbonizing power generation hasn't. So it's going to impact on the way we heat our homes the vehicles we drive, possibly what it is we eat. Um, public support, engagement, uh, consent for decarbonisation is going to be absolutely vital for it to succeed and for it to stick. Now, encouraging, encouragingly, my old boss, Tony Blair's think tank, recently produced a report uh, which shows high levels of concern uh, in the in the electorate about climate change. Uh, that's true across demographics, the age groups, class, urban versus rural. Uh, and also it shows that people are putting increasing salience on tackling climate change in the way that they, they uh, look at politicians and politics. But the, the Tony Blair Institute report also struck a cautionary note uh, and to paraphrase, uh, they warn of a risk of pushback by some people against what can be caricatured as experts telling us to give things up and how to live our lives. Now, do you think this is a real threat uh, or do you think it's exaggerated? And if it is a real threat, that there's a, a kind of political backlash against climate change, what is the best way for us to mitigate that and to address it? Well, first of all, I think we have to take it as a real threat because we've seen throughout um, the democratic world um, an increasing uh, suspicion of experts. Um, it's the only explanation of the nation shooting itself in the foot by voting for Brexit. I mean, nobody sensible would have done that and they've done it. And, and that is a very clear example. And the reason they did it was in very many ways, they've just felt that a lot of people have been left behind and there were these clever people who were telling them what to do. I mean, that is the real, that was the Farage um, uh, way of presenting things. I mean, amazing how he managed to pretend that he was somehow or other a working class, uh, uh, a poor person standing up for them, but he did. So um, we have to recognize in the United States the, the long history of um, anti-intellectualism, which has been a characteristic of American politics, I mean, for 150 years at least, <clears throat> uh, came to its uh, absolute uh, apogee with, uh, with Mr. Trump. Um, now, the, the reason for it is, is one that is continuing. I mean, it is continuing that large numbers of people find the speed with which change is taking place very difficult uh, to cope with. So the first thing that happens is that an awful lot of the old um, uh, of the old signposts uh, aren't there any longer. So the man who said to me, why, why, well, to a friend of mine, when he explained why he was voting to leave the European Union, he said, it's because the vicar's gay. 
Now, now the connection between these two is very obvious. It is that he, the, the, the old things that he could rely on have been removed. And this was the first opportunity he had to say, I don't like this. And there are a lot of people who feel that a lot of things that are happening, they don't like. And, uh, and they don't um, they don't necessarily intellectualize them, but they feel very strong. Now, it's all too easy for that situation to become one in which um, people telling them that climate change is really going to affect them and asking them to do things they don't particularly like could have a, a blowback. So I've noticed that now. I mean, they've uh, articles in certain newspapers of a kind, which we all understand, um, saying we are, it's all it's all the sort of comfortably off and, and, and intellectuals saying these things and pointing very often at me and, and saying, it's all right for him. He's, he's, he's got a, as I have, an air, a, 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 an air source heat pump. And I you know, say he's able to pay for that by forcing it on other people. So we have to recognize that that, that, that is, very likely. And so there are three things we have to do. First of all, we have to have a just transition. And that's why we asked the, the, um, ask the Treasury to produce a report on how we had a just transition, because so far, of course, uh, some of the poorest have paid more than they should. For example, the way that we charge for electricity, which is not the right way to do. And the second thing you have to do is to be much better at talking about it in language which people understand. So I've banned the phrase, for example, kilowatt hour from the Climate Change Committee, because I don't know what it means. <clears throat> I can't see it, I can't feel it, and I don't know whether it's big or small or what. It, I've, I've got to talk about bills. I mean, what, what are people paying? Then you, then you start to talk about something which they understand. And the third thing I think we have to do is to recognize that um, we're going to ask particular communities to, to bear burdens which um, are specific to them. So if you take this famous coal mine, the truth is you can't have a coal mine which has got planning permission till 2047 when you know that after 2035, six, you're not going to be able to use that coal without carbon capture and storage. I mean, that, that's untruthful in the, in the system. So you can't do that. On the other hand, it is a, uh, much needed jobs in a very uh, uh, underprivileged part of the country. And it seems to me that what the government should be doing is saying, we are going to have to say that you can't have the coal mine, but why is the next nuclear power station not going there, for example? I mean, I'm taking that. We've got to be sensitive about these things. And it, we, I don't care much about vague fear, fear phrases like leveling up and, and northern powerhouses and the rest of it. What I care about is if you can't have 2,000 jobs here, you've got to find a way of the green economy actually providing jobs, not in general, but in particular. And it's that issue which I think we've got to deal with if people are going to take this uh, seriously. Otherwise, what happens is they're in favor of action in general and against it in particular, which is always a mess of a disaster. Very powerful point. Uh, Elizabeth, I think we're gonna do some questions from <coughs> our listeners, is that right? Yes, um, we have one uh, that I'll take uh, first, which is uh, related to COP26 and whether it matters if COP26 is delayed again. So I think this is picking up on the fact that it's already been delayed a year uh, and you know potential that it could be delayed again this year. Does it matter? Is it important? Well, I think it matters psychologically because if we don't uh, move, um, people will begin to think that the urgency which is there isn't there because we've been putting it off again. So I think there is a fundamental reason why it should be. Uh, but in the sense, it isn't in our hands, is it? I mean, um, you could imagine having a rather more limited COP with the key people in it. I don't think that would be as valuable because I think that I think that the pressure of all those people around and the atmosphere and the rest of it was very important in, uh, in Paris. <clears throat> and it'll be difficult to reproduce that in a narrower group. But then none of us know what's going to happen. I mean, Britain may find itself uh, in the rare position of being better off on these things than other countries. We may have a new variety, which means that we're in the worse off. How do we know? 
Um, I, what I hope is that we'll be good enough for us to have more or less the COP which we really want to have and to have it in November. The fact that it's been put off for a year, I think, has been extremely good because I don't think this government would have been anywhere near what it is now. Um, nor would it have grasped the nettle in the way that it has now. And I mean, it is exciting, you know. I mean, there are some ministers who clearly aren't really quite up to the whole thing so far, but I'm not sure that's not more generally true. But the fact is, they, they, there's a, there is a real issue here that, that they, but there are others who are remarkable. I mean, I think that Kwasi Kwarteng is, is, has taken this up and run with it in a, a real way. The prime minister is actually chairing these meetings and is actually clearly committed to it. Um, and with all the things I'm, you know, no, not to be perhaps his best um, uh, opponent, but, uh, but proponent, but he, but he has actually done that. Uh, and you look at um, the kind of um, way in which the the treasury has changed. I mean, I used to think the treasury was my most difficult department. I think it's my, in a sense, my my most easy department because they have they've understood it. They know where they are, and and, and Rishi has certainly been really remarkable. So, so there are some really good signs of which we wouldn't have had last November, but I don't think we can put it off again if we can possibly help it. Definitely. Well, and we've talked a little bit about kilowatt hours or, or not to talk about them. Uh, there's a question about uh, another sector, so the food and agriculture sector. So the fact that there's been attention from the prime minister on energy efficiency, renewables, et cetera, but nothing yet on changing diets or the role of agriculture specifically. So the question is, do you think the government is willfully ignoring food? Why? And are you hopeful for the national food strategy? Well, the national food strategy and Henry Dimbleby's work on that will be very important. And every sign is that it will be radical in a way which people haven't really quite understood. The last time I talked to him, that clearly it's going to be a very interesting uh, challenge the government. Uh, well, I, I think we've got to be a bit careful about this. Things have to be done in order. Um, and uh, the truth is that uh, getting carbon neutral energy was a crucially first step. Um, I, I think that um, land use is the most difficult and the most ongoing continuing thing that we're going to have to deal with. It's a question of recovering the way that soil has lost its fertility. It's a question of soil sequestration as a result. And it's also a question of planting trees. And it is also a question of people eating less meat, but as I say, always better meat. I mean, we want meat grown on pasture land and not by food lots. And that would make a huge difference. And we know a lot more now about how you feed, feed animals in a way which reduces their belching remind people that the real problem is the belch rather than anything else and that's what they have to deal with um uh, but i'm not sure that uh, i mean we this has all got to be done and got to be done rapidly but steps have been taken which i don't think people notice we, we had no we I, four years ago i stopped the climate change committee doing part of its uh, report because there were no figures. And so what it was saying about agriculture was entirely based on anecdotal evidence. And that was against, in my view, what we should be done, what should be done. But now um, DEFRA has got proper baselines and you can actually measure things and that will make a huge difference, but it's going to be very big. The thing we have to remember is this great comment by the Pope in the uh, Laudato Si, the, I mean, that absolutely crucial element in this whole story. Six years ago now, it seems almost impossible to think that, but there it was. And when he said climate change is the symptom of what we've done to the world, I think it's a very useful way of thinking of it because it means that you cannot solve climate change without looking at all those other things about biodiversity, about, uh, about land use, about soil quality, all those things we have actually got to face. And um, uh, I think the, the order in which they're done is slightly different. But the 20% reduction in meat eating, which we have 
recommended seems to me something which the public is actually doing itself anyway. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure that we always have to think that government does these things, but I just notice it with my own children. I notice it with my, the way in which friends were, I mean, I'm a, a huge in very, very committed carnivore, but I am eating less meat and we do make sure that we don't eat it twice a day. And we, we really do have days in which we eat uh, things. And what's more, the, the, the vegetarian food is now edible. I mean, some of it is really very good. So, so we're beginning to meet those issues. I'm sorry, we're beginning to go to those issues. So I, I, I'm not so sure that we're not going to achieve that without, without a lot of government intervention. We mustn't, of course, mix that with the intervention which government no doubt will have to do about obesity because it's not just that we ought to eat less meat we ought to just eat less which is a really important issue but not one happily that i have to deal with <laughs> right well yes captured a lot of issues there um another one is on carbon taxes and whether there's been enough attention on carbon border taxes the so carbon border adjustment mechanisms is that receiving enough <clears throat> attention in the uk and internationally, so we've heard a lot in the EU, but should it be getting into uh, attention as well elsewhere? Well, um, it's obviously going to be the true that as the world tackles this whole issue, it's not going to be possible for people to opt out and benefit from the opting out. So, for example, if, um, and the EU has, I think, done very well on this, uh, in its negotiations with uh, Brazil in saying, look, I'm very sorry, but if you go on destroying the, um, uh, the, the, the rainforest, you're not going to have a free trade. We're not going to have that kind of trading arrangement. We, we can't do that. Well, that will become more and more true, that if people don't have some activity of this, then what, they, what you will charge them for <clears throat> is the price that they are exacting from you um, by being able to sell cheaper because they haven't done the things at home. That's what you will do. But it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's quite difficult in the um, World Trade Association organization umbrella. It's quite difficult to do. And, and so we've, we've, we ourselves have got to get to a position in which we can properly do it. You can only really do it when you're showing that you yourself are actually imposing at home the measures that are necessary. And of course, that's why I've been very uh, strong in my comments about international trade. That's why I don't think that it's possible to do free trade uh, agreements with countries that don't have the same safety, the same food safety and, and uh, carbon attitudes that we do. And, and, and it's no good. Uh, the fact that we have failed to get the government to put that in law, but we have got it to say that it won't do that and we will hold it to that is a, is a really serious issue. It is no longer possible to treat trade as if it is just a matter of uh, pounds and pence, because it isn't. We don't treat anything else of our society like that. We've learned a long time ago that ESG, even in the toughest kind of investors, are now recognising that uh, environment, social and governance issues really matter. You can't then say, well, that doesn't count as far as trade's concerned. That seems mm. to me to be pretty balmy and unacceptable. Mm, definitely. Um, now we have a question related to the U.S. role and China. So you know, President Biden's new executive office of climate envoy with John Kerry, uh, what will his role be and how likely is he to be successful at um, bringing China to the table like uh, was achieved at COP21? And, and this is a series of questions in one. Uh, current And how will current tensions with China potentially negatively impact uh, the ambition that's hoped for at COP26? Well, I think we've got to start off by accepting that um, uh, John Kerry is a very considerable international figure. You would be very unlikely to find a better person to do this. He's, uh, his work in the past has been that. I, uh, I've been privileged to know him and I uh, have already had uh, a long meeting with him. I, I feel very strongly that we are extremely lucky. He is totally committed to this, but both uh, politically and morally. I mean, you know, he, he knows it's right, which is a very important part of, of this. 
Um, he's also a, a very good diplomat and he does understand uh, how to, I mean, he's tough and he's not um, soft, but he, but he does understand what the priorities are. And of course, China is one of those priorities. China is, is in a difficult position, um, both vis-a-vis -vis us and, and as far as itself is concerned, because it does believe in climate change. There's no doubt at all that the um, authorities do understand because they see what it's doing to themselves, and not just because of the appalling um, uh, pollution in their cities, but also because of the drying up of the water in large areas of China, and the fact that in the same time you have floods, you know, you have both um, uh, both drought and floods, and that's doing huge danger and damage. And many of the problems that they've got are the result of that, of deforestation, of a whole series of other things that have happened. So again, China has had to learn that the old fashioned thing of the sort of what I call the three gorges attitude, which is that you plonk something down and some huge operation is done and that will deliver, isn't going to work. Mm. But at the same time, of course, you know, this is a regime which has now got no uh, easily pointed to authority. I mean, historically, uh, there was the Long March. And if you've been on the Long March, you, you had this, this kind of uh, authority. Nobody left that. That's, that's gone. So you're now in power, um, but your reasons for doing so are much more difficult to argue. So, so keeping in power is quite hard. And the, this, this particular part of the regime has decided that the only way to do that is in a very, very tough and extremely dictatorial manner. Mm. But they've also got to live in the world. Um, and the world has to understand that, and they understand that too. And we've got to get better at dealing with them. Um, and one of the things is to have continued um, and very, very close relationships in every way that we that we possibly can. And I don't believe in excluding them. You just have to you just have to learn um, uh, to, to to live with and work with. But you have to be very clear about certain things. So I don't think that one can properly behave differently from the way we are behaving in terms of genocide. But we've got to find a way through and Kerry has understood that. So maybe as a last question, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, part of the argument around how to pay for the cost of climate change and the fact that the private sector will need to to take on share of that burden. One of the questions is, uh, you know, what what clarity will there be or should there be for businesses in terms of making this transition and, and what will be the, the policy direction and clarity from government on the technology transition that is needed? Well, um, first of all, uh, the the concept of the six carbon budget is to give that cl that clarity. You know where we're going to, and you know um, very much about the program which you have to get through to. Uh, government then has to do an awful lot, and so far on the policy front, <clears throat> I think it has done that. If you look at the motor car uh, issue, I mean, uh, buying an electric motor car is a wholly different activity today from what it was a year ago. Since the government made those changes, almost every motor car company has come forward with the state that they're going to stop building any motor cars except electric ones, because clearly the rest of the world is following Britain. Britain has done the lead in that. Very important. It took us a lot of doing the Climate Change Committee. They started, if you remember, under Mr. Gray. Uh, arguing that they couldn't do it any earlier than 2040, and that was enormously cold and hard. I remember sitting across at him and telling him it wasn't true. But the fact is, we've got it back to 2035 and then 2033 and then 2030. It's really good. And I do think Grant Shapps, again, is somebody who has taken this issue really seriously and is delivering. So, um, uh, Setting those examples so people know where they are is crucially important. And there's a lot more of that that has to be done, particularly in what we have to do about distribution of energy, about uh, um, the use of the motor car as a storage um, part of energy, all sorts of things, that, detailed stuff. How, you know, we've got this ludicrous thing of very, very high tech offshore wind, but the onshoring of offshore wind is, is a sort of dad's army operation. It's really awful. We've really got to get these things right. There's a lot to be done. Um, the one thing the government has got to learn is that the good is the enemy of the perfect. I mean, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Um, and they're 
constantly wanting to change things because it's a bit better if you do it this way. I really do think it's better to be doing the slightly wrong thing, but sticking to it than constantly fiddling about with it. I'm afraid Tony Blair's government, if I may dare say that to Jeffrey, was particularly good at that. But they all follow, they all think that, and it's, it's fiddling at the edges. And what we have to recognize is that you want to stick to it. You want, and let's just take, um, again, comes rather oddly from me, but um, just watch the prime minister's program for getting out of lockdown is exemplary. I mean, once again today, he said, I'm sticking to this. And you lot that keep on wanting to do things faster or differently, I'm afraid that's not what's going to happen. It's going to happen like this. Now, um, in a sense, there may be better ways and odd things that could have been done and people being uh, uh, less in uh, discommoded. But the fact is, if you really want people to know where they are and get on, the, they have to know where they are. And you don't change the dates and you don't change the, the bit in the, what the program is. And you go through that uh, in, in the way which he has attempted to do on COVID. I think that's what we've got to do on climate change. Then business can afford to invest. Business must know that it puts money in. And I just end by this. The worst example of how not to do things was the Conservative government in, 19, in, in, in 2017, when they went back on the Labour Party's commitment to net zero homes. Now, we all know the Labour Party's commitment was as far ahead as they could make it, because none of the ministers who made it were likely to be around by then. So let's not be, you know, let's not be um, uh, uh, naive about this. On the other hand, the Conservative government cancelled that. As a result, <clears throat> we've built a million houses which have got to be retrofitted because of that. Now, that means that the house building industry, the, the nine businesses which control 80% of the house building, have shuffled off their responsibility into the purchasers. So instead of them building a house or a flat, which was properly built. They built crap houses and crap flats, which the people who bought them have now got to put right. I think that's just morally wrong. And it's an example of what happens if you don't stick to your program. So stick to your program, people will then invest. And once they are sure of that, then you will get more investment, which is why the two great sins one was the house fund and the other was the reduction of our money for the developing countries from 0.7 to 0.5, because that undermines people's commitment and their confidence in how you're going to act. Thank you very much. Uh, huge amount of wisdom and insight uh, from you. That was extremely interesting, uh, including the advice to politicians to stop fiddling. Uh, something with which I agree. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we'll have another opportunity to talk about these issues again in the future. Uh, but for today, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. <laughs>